Good morning and welcome back. I'm Rick Brown. Thank you for joining us on today's Seek First podcast, where we share biblical truth and engage in today's culture. Take a minute to subscribe to the Seek First podcast. Thanks, everybody. Stick around. I think you're going to be encouraged. Spending time with the Lord will be the best part of your day. So let's get ready. Grab your Bible, prepare your heart and mind. Let's go. So we're uh, sharing the gospel around the world. We're sharing the gospel here. We're also wanting to be salt and light in our community. And with this week, with the elections and things, I just want to encourage you in a number of things why it's so important for our engagement. This week's reading, I'm going to share two passages, one about this, uh, basically a brief review about where we're at in this election uh, that comes from a passage of scripture. It tells us in Proverbs chapter 28, verse 16, a ruler who lacks understanding is a great oppressor. And what has happened in the last two years, we have seen that, and this is in our reading through the two-year Anchored in the Word series, reading through the Bible. And um, you can't lose heart when it doesn't go the way that you think it should. You really have to be bold. We're, we realized uh, in 2020, we entered a new season of the world in America where the mass was kind of ripped off and we see what's going on and where the agenda's at. It tells us in Proverbs 24:10, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Meaning that when we go through hard times, we just don't roll over and quit. We realize this is a long game. Not only is it a long game in your walk with the Lord, it's this long distance run in your walk with the Lord. And also to not only maintain your personal freedom, but freedom for our nation is a long journey. It's the long view. So that's where we're at. And I was thinking about this as I was reading a book recently or reviewing it. Uh, which is good to great. And uh, Jim Collins shares a story of an interview with uh, Admiral, Vice Admiral Stockdale. And Vice Admiral Stockdale is the highest ranking official that was captured during the Vietnam uh, War. He was an aviator, and so he went down in the jungles, and he was in um, the Hanoi prison for seven years, the longest uh, season of that kind of ranking high official. And Jim Collins asked him this question, who makes it in the camp and who doesn't? He says, well, the first to go are the optimists. And he said, what do you mean? He said, well, the optimists will not engage with reality. So they say, by Christmas, we're going to be home with our families. And Christmas comes and goes, and they're just crushed. And then, oh, we're going to, by, by Easter, we'll be home with our, our, our family. And then they're crushed. He said, Stockdale, who survived, and by the way, is a uh, Congressional Medal of Honor winner. So it, it's not an easy task to experience that. He says this, you must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose. This man was a man of faith and held the faith that he was gonna prevail in the end, even through the seven years of torture that he went through, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. The simplest explanation of this paradox, which is called the Stockdale Paradox, according to Jim Collins, it's the idea of hoping for the best, but acknowledging and preparing for the worst. So we realize we're in this conflict, and I love to be brutally honest about the facts in our situation, and then realize that God is bigger than that situation, right? My eyes are on the Lord, not the situation. So it's the only way to be tenacious and go through it like a donkey through a hailstorm. And uh, I didn't talk this way when I lived in the free-loving state of Idaho. 
because people believe in independence and liberty and freedom and uh, the freedom of speech and <laughs> having a gun and, you know, just like I grew up in a land of freedom and when I came to California and they're just passing like 700 laws a year. Now, if a culture's already functioning and now you're going to put 700 laws on it a year, like what kind of laws are there? The society's already functioning. So I want you to look at how close these are because they're not as far off so that you don't... You don't think, hey, man, if we work and pray and seek the Lord and ask for his help in the next 10 years, the governor race, Brian Dolly versus Gavin Newsom, uh, the difference between these votes, and by the way, this is almost down the, the, whole, down the entire column that about 45% voted in a conservative way and 55% voted in a leftist way. And so 10% is something we have to realize that, that, that we can work towards that. The difference in those votes just in our county for the governorship is 17,000. It's really not that big a difference if people are educated and they get out to vote. Our simple thing is just common sense leadership, parental rights. Lou Little that we had on stage last week, he's been a Thousand Oaks principal. He is really the best guy for this job of Ventura County Community College District Area 2. And uh, look at this, 69 votes. Do you think it's important for somebody to go out and vote? 69 votes. And Lou Little loves the Lord, and if he could get into a place like this and bring that salt and light of godliness, 69 votes, it's a big deal. Look how much, how many people agree with our perspective. <laughs> The sad thing is that where all, all the population and people are in the urban centers, they get the votes. So I want you to be encouraged not to feel alone, but I want you one by one to encourage people, whether it's midterm elections or the governorship elections, that every vote counts. Lincoln, who's Mr. Quote, he says, the ballot is stronger than the bullet. But, check this out, the next one, he said, it is not the qualified voters, but the qualified voters who choose to vote that constitute the political power. <laughs> Do you know that only, like, something ridiculous, like only 24% of Christians, there's professed about 15 million Christians in California, only 24% of them are uh, registered, and only half of them vote in a presidential election, not even a midterm. So Christians don't bring their world view, and then they hope that things are going to turn out great. And I love this quote, the next one by Abraham Lincoln. Elections belong to the people. It's their decision. If they decide to turn their back on the fire and burn their behinds, then they will just have to sit on their blisters. <laughs> I, I, I'm coming up with a new policy. When people complain about government, I'm going to ask them right off the bat, did you vote? And if they say no, I'm not going to listen to anything they have to say. Because you like to complain, but you don't think it makes a difference. This is my favorite quote of all time of Abraham Lincoln concerning this subject. We the people are the rightful masters of both Congress and the courts, not to overthrow the Constitution, but to overthrow the men who would pervert the Constitution. And that's where we're at with all of the things that are going on in our, our nation and why are we so passionate? Maybe this is your first time at church. Why are you, you might ask, why are we engaging in the public square? Well, Proverbs 29.2 says, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. 
when there's wicked leadership, people are grieved by the decisions that they're making. So I see the decisions that political leaders that are making that are such godless decisions and the rhetoric that they bring with it. And I think of uh, our governor, Gavin Newsom, that he is now the, the darling poster child of the left that's gonna run for the presidential election in 2024. And, and uh, it's just fascinating to me that somebody with that, that agenda, that political agenda, abortion first, child sacrifice, as the first on the agenda of the political party to the left. The grief of that, the grieving of the heart of God for the innocent blood is just outrageous. And to see how they tout it, you would be, I would think even if you hold the position, you would be ashamed to do this to children. All of this matters because Proverbs 14, 34 says, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Through the goodness of, of God working in people's lives for righteousness, this is how a nation is sustained in its freedom and its liberty. And the bookends, you know, the founding fathers knew that it was a Judeo-Christian ethic that started the country. We have Patrick Henry, a ratifier of the U.S. Constitution. He says this, It cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians. Not on, not on religions, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. For this very reason, peoples of other faiths have been afforded asylum, prosperity, and freedom to worship here. It's a place of liberty. Moving out to President Truman, who uh, saw the end of World War II, says this, the fundamental basis of this nation's laws was given to Moses on the mount. The fundamental basis of our Bill of Rights comes from the teachings we get from Exodus and St. Matthew, from Isaiah and St. Paul. If we don't have a proper fundamental moral background, we will finally end up with a totalitarian government which does not believe in the rights for anybody except the state. And that's what we see now manifest. That's shocking. It's like, boom! It's like slapped us in the face in the last couple of years. Exactly what President Truman, who he's, he, he just finished World War II with all of the totalitarian regimes in World War II. And he said, if you do not have a biblical faith that brings liberty and a concept of freedom and individual rights, those people believed in state rights and the individual has no rights. So it's a concept that is so important for us to grasp in our minds you know, Lincoln described the difference between a statesman and a politician. He said, a statesman is he who thinks in the future generations. A politician is he who thinks in the upcoming elections. And we really need statesmen at this season of life to speak to the future generations and what's going on. And I just want you to not be discouraged because this is a long game of engagement. But you have to, obviously, bring it back to the Lord Jesus we're Christians, our citizenship is in heaven, our eyes are on the Lord, and, but we live on planet Earth. You know, Charles Spurgeon, the famous British preacher, showed up late to an event and somebody said, where were you? And he said, well, I was voting in the election. He said, yeah, but you're a citizen of heaven. He said, yes, my, but my body lives here in London. <laughs> so he, he wanted to go vote uh, before he got there. 
Well, the king is on the throne in the book of Hebrews, which is our anchored in the word series, reading through the Bible. The author of Hebrews lays out to you and I this incredible mystery man. He's an enigma. He's this individual that uh, many people just, they're like, what is this all about? Melchizedek. Now, this Melchizedek that uh, we only have two passages in the Old Testament that talk about him in Genesis chapter 14 and in Psalm 110. Now, he's an important person in the sense that what he, God had declared, because the writer of Hebrews singularly, no other author touches this subject, he singularly is going to teach us about this mystery man. He starts by telling us that this Melchizedek is the Old Testament personage of Melchizedek is a type of the Lord Jesus who is to come. And he declares to us the first thing, and in this passage, depending on our time, I want to share with you 10 brief things. I I can't share all the verses in chapter 7, but we mention at first, we see Jesus is the author of salvation. He's the author of salvation. It says in verse 9 of chapter 5, And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say. Check this out, because some of you like glazed over. Wake up. He says, Of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Now, I know that you guys are not dull of hearing. You got your notebooks out. You're sharp as a tack, and you're ready to learn what he's talking about. But he tells us here that Jesus has become the author of eternal salvation to all who have believed in him. According to the order of Melchizedek. Now, this order of Melchizedek as a priest is a different order as he's going to teach us than the Levitical priesthood and the Aaronic priesthood. So he wants to instruct us that the author, just like an author that writes a book, the author of your salvation, the writer of Hebrews also calls him the author and finisher of our faith. He he not only began your story in Jesus, but he's going to write the last word in your story, the end. And yet it's in this unusual order of Melchizedek as we look at this. The second thought that he tells us Moving on to the next chapter, chapter 6, he tells us Jesus is the anchor of hope for our soul in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 6. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus becoming high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So, he tells us here that the anchor of the hope for our souls is wrapped up in Jesus. Now, an anchor is something that holds a boat in place so that it can be stabilized, not drift away, and it can stay in the spot that the captain of the boat wants it to be. Now, as you drop anchor, you're hoping that no matter how the wind blows, the waves move you, that you have this anchor that is connected all the way, heavy-weighted to the ground. But I need an anchor, and you need an anchor for our souls. 
How can all this stuff be going on around Christians' lives? Relational adversity, physical adversity, financial adversity, sickness and disease adversity, governmental official adversity. In all of this, and yet we have this anchor, Jesus, who has went into heaven, it says, behind the veil, it's like this long chain. My anchor is rather than at the bottom of the sea, my anchor is in heaven, and the Lord Jesus who has went behind the veil has this strong, big chain. You ever see the size of those chains on those great big uh, aircraft carriers? I mean, the, the links in the chains are these ginormous things. When they drop them, there's this incredible, huge, heavy-weighted anchor, and Jesus has it in heaven, but the other is anchored to my soul with a hope. No matter what goes on, I have this hope in the Lord Jesus. He's never going to leave me. He's never going to forsake me. Maybe you're here tonight. You know, that adage is so true that you can, a man can live for 40 days without food, 10 days without water. He can live four minutes without oxygen but he cannot live a day without hope. As soon as a person gets to a hopeless place, gets to a place of despair, gets to a place that, you know, I, I'm just, there's no way out. I don't know how to, I don't know what to do. It's this kind of place that people get into uh, the temptation and the struggle with possibly becoming nihilistic or taking their own life because they, they don't think there's any hope. And, we go through different seasons in our life where we can become hopeless. But the author of Hebrews wants us to know, not only is Jesus the author of our eternal salvation, which is safe and secure through faith in him, but also we have this anchor that is connected to Jesus in heaven, and it's an anchor of hope. Because I can wake up every day and go to sleep every night filled with the hope in who Jesus is. You know, there's three great Christian characteristics that Paul the Apostle says, these are the three things that matter in the Christian's life. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. But faith, when I trust God, no matter what I'm facing, filled with the hope, and the hope, scriptural hope, biblical hope, is not a, I hope so. It's not this, uh, you're, you're, you're biting your fingernails. No, the hope is the certainty of coming good from the hand of a loving God. That is the definition of hope in the scriptures. The certainty of coming good from God to me as a child of God. There's no question about it. There is hope coming to you. There's hope coming to your heart because he is good and his nature is to give you that hope. He is worthy as the object of your faith. God is worthy as you trust him. He fills your heart with hope. Therefore, now I can love people freely because as soon as I start being filled with doubt, and I lose hope, I become edgy, agitated, and unloving. You ever have that experience, right? So, but when I'm filled with hope, like, man, God's on the throne. I'm filled with hope. Coming good's coming my way. Hey, let's go help somebody out, because my eyes get off of myself. But as I struggle, and I lose hope, and I become afraid, or I become filled with unbelief, I, I begin to shrink within myself, just self-preservation. And I lose hope, and I don't I want to help somebody else. I can't even figure out my own garbage, right? So it's so important that our hearts are anchored in hope. And it's so important that we understand the guy that's writing our book, the author of our eternal salvation, is the Lord Jesus. 
He's the one that brings the anchor of hope. And both times, in chapter 5 and chapter 6, he says, according to the order of Melchizedek. He's like, what's that even mean? Okay, well, we're going to get to it. Now realize this, before we do, typology is the study of Old Testament stories, pictures, and illustrations that teach Christians New Testament truths. There's this little preacher's adage that tells us the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed, and the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. Meaning when I see an Old Testament story, there's types or pictures that point to New Testament truths, that point to the Lord Jesus. And this is one of those types that the author of Hebrews tells us that Melchizedek is. So chapter 7 is all about this character. It tells us, the third thing, is that Jesus as this Melchizedek, is a king and a priest. In verse 1 of chapter 7, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all. First being translated king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. So, Abraham, in Genesis chapter 14, you know the story. Genesis 14, four kings came to fight against five kings. Now, the five kings stopped paying tribute to one of the kings, Kedi Lomar. And so the four kings, they come. Now, you have to understand kings in that day. That it's, Bible teachers call it the battle of the kings, Genesis 14. Okay? And so because there's these four kings against five kings, they're more like it's the king of Sodom, it's the king of all these city-states. So these cities had walled cities, and the king of each city, we would call him a mayor right? They call him a king of a city. But there's the mayor of Sodom, there's the mayor of all, of, and they have all their names and their titles. So it's a bunch of mayors that get together to fight against others. Now in this process of the battle, the four kings conquer the five kings, and they conquer the city of Sodom, and they take Lot, Abraham's nephew, and his family, and all their possessions away. Now, somebody that escaped, a, a guy that didn't get caught, he got away. He runs, runs all the way to uh, Hebron, where Abraham was. And I don't know how he knew, but he runs to him and he tells him, hey, the city of Sodom fell and your nephew was, he's now a POW. So Abraham. Now, Abraham, we, we never see Abraham do anything militarily whatsoever, okay, throughout the scriptures till this point. Abraham now steps up, and this is the way it is in any kind of, they were basically in a civil war, a kind of dynamic that was going on. They were in their own cultural war, right? They were in their own battle. And Abraham, he just stays out of the fray of all of that until they mess with his family. And isn't this the way it is? When they come after your kid, or when they come to your doorstep, and it's when they put their boot on your throat that you're like, okay. Now until then, you're just like, you know, just, I just... I don't want to get involved. I don't want to say anything. I just want to be peaceful. I just want to be invisible. I just want to, come on, why are you drawing all this attention to us? I don't want to be involved. But when they come to your kid, that's, you know, the people that have been the most vocal for the last two years are the women, right? You mess with women's kids and it's, <laughs> right? 
We call it Mama Bear is going to show up and in your face. She doesn't care how big you are or what's going on. She's just like, you don't touch my kid. They're not, you know, you could just, I could just see the thinking. I have stretch marks because of this kid, right? I painfully brought this kid into the world. And it's not the state's kid. It's not the school's job to indoctrinate this kid, right? So you, you get torqued off. And it's not until they touch your family that you finally engage in the conflict. So Abraham now is engaged, why? Because they took his nephew. They should not have done that. Because though we know Abraham is the man of faith, Abraham actually has been training SEAL Team Six in his own camp, right? It tells us that he went to his, check this out. Now Abraham was so wealthy, it says he was heavy with wealth. He was so wealthy, he had 318 servants that were born into his own household. Not only were they born into his own household, these are kids that raised up in Camp Abraham, right? They really sang Father Abraham, <laughs> had many sons, right? And, and so they grew up as in his uh, community of Abraham, and it says that he trained them. He did military training as they're growing up because you're in no man's land, right? He has no city walls around him. He lives out in the open. So you have to have your own security force out here in the sticks, and Abraham has one. He has 318 armed men that he has trained in hand-to-hand -hand combat. He arms them all, gives them all their, soldier, or their, their swords, their spears, whatever. He takes off. Now, he, he has to build an alliance because, you see, Abram, Abraham also is just one person walking with God with a lot of wealth and a lot of family. But he's got to build relationships with people that are the Amorites. Now, he does it with three guys, Mamre and his two brothers, Eshcol and uh, Aner, according to the story. You check this out. Genesis chapter 14. Now he has three, these three brothers, they're also prominent tribesmen. They live in the same neighborhood. They said, you know, when conflict comes, you know the four of us, we will come together. We got all our men, we'll defend ourselves, we'll do what we gotta do. So he goes to uh, Mamre, Eshcol, and Anner and goes, hey, they took my nephew, guys. And, and I gotta go get him, I have 100, or 318 men, will you go? They get all their men that they have trained and they take off and they chase them down. They chase them up north, and at night, when they get close to them, they split up their forces, and they attack them in the night, and they overcome them, and they chase them, and they conquer the four kings. They get all the people that were POWs, prisoners of war, and all of the spoil, and they bring it all back to deliver it back safely home, because Abraham has no desire to be an oppressor. He is a liberator. He wants to set people free. And Abraham, no doubt you can hear him saying, I, left, I stayed out of the whole deal until they touched my family. And when they came from my family, I'm no longer on the sidelines, I'm engaged. And so he comes back, and when he comes back, he meets in the Valley of the Kings, and two kings come out to meet him at the same time. The king of Sodom comes to meet him. He says, I want all the souls back, I want the people, because for him, how can you be a king with no people, right? You gotta, you gotta have somebody, you gotta have the peasants that take care of the king. So he wants the people, he says, you keep all the spoil. Aaron says, no, I don't, I don't want your spoil, and, and the people are free to go. 
But he meets also at the same time Melchizedek. So the king of Sodom comes out, and Melchizedek, who is the king of Jerusalem, or Salem. And the king of Salem is also a priest. Now this is unheard of in all scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Nobody's a king priest. There's king prophet, there's priest prophet, there's never, ever, ever, ever king priest. Only Melchizedek is king and priest of Jerusalem. Ancient Jerusalem, this is way before, this is 2,000 years before Jesus shows up on the scene. And he comes out to meet Abraham and he brings bread and wine. He comes to refresh him after this battle. But what an incredible picture since we see the typology here that this is a picture of Jesus. Because the writer of Hebrews now tells us what does Melchizedek's name mean? It means the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Melchizedek, who is the king of Salem, Salem, Shalom, means peace, but Melech, or uh, Melchizedek, means righteousness. So he's the king of righteousness and he's the king of peace, and Abraham meets him. Now, in this era of patriarchs, and among the Jews, there is no one greater than the father of faith, Abraham, correct? Abraham's the guy. But Abraham bows and offers a tithe of all the spoil and lays it at the feet of Melchizedek as he is the priest most high, of the most high God. And in return, Melchizedek gives a blessing. He gives a blessing because you see the writer of Hebrews is gonna tell us that by far those who are the, the greater bless the lesser. And so it's this picture that, now if you're a real Bible student, your mind is immediately saying, is this a Christophany? Is this an Old Testament appearance of Christ? Now, I love all the Christophanies in the Old Testament, but I personally believe this is not. It's a physical man who's a king of a city and the priest of that city because all the other Christophanies is not a person that has a geographical location and title. Just my own take. If I have other Christian pastors and friends that love to debate me and argue about this, I go, God bless you. It's not, you know, potato, potato. It's not a, a big deal. But what I'm saying is, here's a real guy, but the typology is so rich. The typology is so rich that I've now, according to the writer of Hebrews, chapter five, chapter six, and chapter seven, that Jesus is this picture as the author of my salvation, my eternal salvation. He is the anchor of my hope, and he is my king of righteousness and my king of peace. Because righteousness is the key to all mental sanity. Righteousness is to get right with God and know you're right with God, and right with people gives you mental health. Does it not? Right? When I know I'm right with God. I just have this incredible, and what happens, what flows after rightness and righteousness is peace. I have peace. I have this deep peace inside of me that God is doing a work in me because he's extended to me this righteousness by faith that I could not obtain any other way. Hey, guys, can you put the uh, clock on my uh, monitor up here? Is that possible? Okay, cool. Um, so I know when to order pizzas. So, Okay. <laughs> But the, the wonderful news about this typology is that now, as it tells us, the likeness of the writer of Hebrews wants to get at this in verse three of chapter seven, when he says, this is how he draws this illustration that 
All, most prominent people in the scriptures are given a history of their genealogy. Who's their father, who's their mother, who their people are. But notice it says in verse 3, without father, without mother, without genealogy, neither uh, beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. So the illusion that is taken as a spiritual lesson in the New Testament was, was simply omitted in the Old Testament. Doesn't talk about his genealogy, doesn't talk about his father, doesn't talk about his mother, doesn't talk about his birth or his death. It gives the picture that he's this guy that just lives forever, right? And that's who Jesus is, he's eternal. So he lives forever and Jesus, the Son of God, remains a priest continually for eternity. Now the fourth thing that we see in this incredible story about Melchizedek and pointing to Jesus is Jesus is greater than Abraham, which is, as I said, to the Jewish person. Now remember this. This is so important. Let me read this passage and reemphasize this. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. But he received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. The, pro the entire point of the book of Hebrews Donald Gray Barnhouse, which was the uh, premier uh, commentator and preacher at the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia for 40 years, had a radio program, if those who are older will have heard Donald Gray Barnhouse, but he had this really uh, stodgy kind of voice, and uh, he's like, the book of Hebrews was written to the Hebrews to tell them to stop being Hebrews, because they had been going back to the temple, going back to the priesthood. They had discovered Jesus, they were born again, they were set free, but they had this tendency to go back into the old rut of the old religious system. So the entire book of Hebrews starts off in chapter one that Jesus is better than the angels. It goes on, he's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He's better than, in this passage, Abraham. Jesus is better. It's 11 times the word better is used in the book of Hebrews. I call it the epistle of the better than. Jesus is better than all these other things. He is elevated to a place of exaltation and to the Jew to see this and to remember that Abraham pay the tenth of all the spoils. It was that surrendered heart to Melchizedek and the blessing that Melchizedek gave to Abraham that showed the picture of the superior ministering to the lesser. I remember as a young Christian, I had just gotten a Bible, and uh, some 38 years ago, and I was reading through the book of Genesis, and I came across this story. And I'm a young Christian, I, I know absolutely nothing. <laughs> Uh, I was the Christian that when you showed up at church, I, was in, I, I would want to leave as fast as possible because I was sure somebody was going to ask me a Bible question and I knew nothing. When the pastor said, turn to this chapter and you got to go to the you know, index in the front of the Bible, that's really embarrassing for me. I'd be looking at other people's Bibles, but you know, I couldn't go to their page number because it was a different version. Right? <laughs> but I was reading this passage and I saw, oh, this Abraham, he gave a tenth and I didn't understand the Melchizedek thing. I just realized that it was, a, it was a, a scene of worship for this guy of faith. I said, oh, well, I mean, honestly, because I was, had no exposure to church, I didn't even know what a tithe was. And I, I said, well, I'm gonna just start giving to the Lord, a tenth. I'm just, 
That sounds cool. You know, that's a way to honor him with my finances. And it was this childlike faith of reading this passage and then just beginning to have it transform me, being inspired by the picture of Abraham's faith towards this Melchizedek. And not knowing that it has this New Testament revelation and understanding that it's pointing to, actually, the Lord Jesus the fifth thing that the writer of Hebrews tells us is Jesus is greater than the Levitical priesthood in verses 11 and 12. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, of necessity there is also a change of the law. The Levitical priesthood through Aaron could not bring perfection. It could not bring the change that needed to take place. So Jesus needed to come, but in a different order of priesthood. Number six, Jesus is from the tribe of Judah that nobody talks about the priest from the tribe of Judah, verse 13. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. Once again, this picture that Melchizedek had no mother, father, genealogy, nothing like that. And so the picture of Jesus, he's living as a priest with the power, the power of an endless life. The problem with the priests of the Old Testament is they kept dying, right? Just imagine you get a good relationship with the priest, and then he dies on you. You get another relationship with the priest, he dies on you. You get another, no, this priest is good, good, good to go forever. <laughs> you, you have him your entire life, the power of an endless life. And I don't think that you and I, because we've so become accustomed to the resurrection truth that you can conquer death, Jesus conquered death and sin through the resurrection, that we live in a culture in the church where we just so take for granted resurrection life and we're gonna live forever, but to an ancient culture that death was so real and ugly and gross, that hope for the common people throughout history that I'm gonna live forever and Jesus is my priest forever through the power of this endless life, verse 17, for he testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, which is the only second passage in the Old Testament that he's ever mentioned, and that is in Psalm 110, verse four. Lastly, we'll rip through these last points and end up our message. Seven, Jesus brings a better hope in verses 18 and 19. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment, the Old Testament, because of its weakness and unprofitableness, for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. You see, the Old Testament could not, it could point out your sin but it could not fix your sin. You know, we have instruments like that. An x-ray machine can tell you your bone's broken, but can it heal that bone? No. A thermometer can tell you have a temperature. Can it bring the temperature down? No, it simply says that you have a fever. But Jesus is the one that comes along and says, yes, you are broke, but I'm the one that can fix you. I can redeem you. Therefore, what does he say? He says, this brings in a better hope. Like that, the 
anchor of the soul kind of hope, a better hope. But it's also a better covenant because it's not only a hope, but it's an agreement that is spiritual and supernatural in nature. Number eight, Jesus brings a better covenant, verse 22. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. It's better than the Old Testament covenant because the Old Testament covenant said, do this and live. Jesus says, live and do this. It's the reality that I'm right by faith 100% when I come to Christ, and then I begin to live out the sanctification process as God changes me. But the law says, no, you, you, you break one part of the law, you busted it all. And there's 613 laws in the Old Testament. What a drag, right? You broke one. Paul the Apostle, who was Mr. Righteous, said it was not, and we say it in Romans chapter seven, it was not, this is the, you know what the commandment that slayed him? You shall not covet. Because he could say, I honored my father and mother. I've never stolen anything. I've never committed adultery. I've never, uh, you know, I don't bear, I'm not a liar. I don't bear false witness. He goes through the whole list in his mind, this Pharisee of Pharisees, and he gets to this place and the Lord goes, yeah, but you shall not covet, which is an inward desire for something that is not yours. I want what they have. I want their job. I want their wife. I want their you know, money. I want their new car. I want their what? He said that was the one that it just like was a dagger in Paul's heart that he realized, oh man, the law slayed him and it couldn't fix There was no way for him to fix it. He could offer an animal sacrifice and it would cover, but it wouldn't remove the sin. Number nine, Jesus is better than a better savior, it tells us. Therefore, he is also able, I love this phrase, he is also able to save to the uttermost, or the guttermost, depending on where you're at, those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Do you know what Jesus lives for throughout eternity, 24-7? To intercede for you, to talk to the Father about you. To tell, tell the Father how much he loves you. How, Father, let's help him. Father, let's, it's, it's all ministry to you. Jesus' ministry through eternity, the joy of his heart is talking to the Father through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's teaching us how to pray and interceding. Jesus is interceding with the Father and it comes back around to the blessing of our heart. Man, Jesus is praying for me. You know what blesses my heart? My wife prays for me all the time. She has these girlfriends. She does prayer walks with them and all this stuff. She goes, we prayed for you, and I'm always so blessed. But when I think about this passage, I'm like, oh, snap, Jesus is praying for me. Like, all the time. He's praying for you. He's no respecter of persons. He's interceding for us. So he's the better, he's the best Savior because he not only died to conquer sin and death and rise from the dead, but now he lives in heaven to intercede for us, to pray for us. Because the devil is there 24-7 accusing the brethren day and night about our sins, about our failures. He's a prosecuting attorney, but fortunately we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins, but not ours only, but for all, all who believe in him. Lastly, Jesus is the better and the best sacrifice in verse 27, because it was once and for all, you don't have to do it over and over. Verse 27, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once and for all when he offered up for himself. He offered up himself. He is the perfect sacrifice. You know, the anchor for my soul of the hope of Jesus 
Jesus is praying for me. His sacrifice once and for all has washed all of my past sins, my present struggles, my future struggles of sin. And he is my king of righteousness. He is my king of peace. And I can face whatever we have going on in our culture, whatever we have going on in our our country, whatever is going on around the world, because this is the anchor. This is where our hearts are. Therefore, God's people can always be the most fearless about faith, hope, and love. And to stand up to, to speak truth to power when oppressors come. And that's why the church has to be stopped by oppressors. That's why the church has to have their YouTube channels canceled <laughs> and their Twitter accounts cut off and all this stuff because they, you, the world cannot handle truth, the truth of God. The world cannot handle the truth that, hey, there's two genders, male and female. It's very simple. I know it seems like just today, that, those are fighting words to this weird, twisted, upside-down world. But why do we have the courage to have the voice? Because the, our king is the king of righteousness, and our king is the king of peace, and he's praying for us, and he's with us. Lord, we ask that you would encourage us now. Lord, I pray for those who are just in this place right now, that they just need your peace. You're the king, Lord, but they have lost sight of that. Their hearts are anxious. Their hearts are fearful. Their hearts are afraid. Lord, I pray that your spirit would just fall like a a gentle rain upon their hearts and their minds and their souls tonight. Draw them close to yourself with your incredible love. Do your work in their hearts. Refresh them. Encourage them. Build them up and who you are. Thank you, Jesus, that we're praying to you, but you're praying for us. And you are able to save us to the uttermost, to the, no matter what extremes, no matter what links, Lord, we, we find ourselves in, Lord, you are there with your hope to rescue us. So we cry out to you, Lord, that you would refresh us by your spirit tonight. Encourage us and our families as we love you and we serve you and we follow you. We ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name. I've seen the light in the darkness. I want hope for the hopeless and rest for the weary mind. And you've got truth for the taking, but my heart won't be shaken if today be the day that I die. Whoa, 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 whoa. Now I worry about tomorrow or fear in times of trouble. I keep my heart seeking you. Oh, I will keep my heart seeking you. Whoa, whoa, whoa.
trouble I'll keep my heart seeking you I will keep my heart seeking